This is what we're getting out today. This is our order. This is for Sazerac in Kentucky. These are all whiskey barrels and they need to get shipped out today. There's a hundred of them. So. <laughs> and we still have uh, like 40 to finish. I've tasted delicious wine and whiskey and beer and more that were aged in them, but I'd never seen them actually being built before. But on our first reporting trip post-vaccination, we headed straight to Oregon Barrel Works. It's one of the few cooperages left in America. A cooper is the person who makes barrels, so the barrel factory is technically a cooperage. Bonus factoid, if you meet someone with the last name Cooper... One of their distant ancestors probably made barrels. And this episode is indeed all about barrels. You're listening to Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And yes, it's an episode about barrels, but it's also the story of the small team working to save a unique Western landscape by making barrels with whiskey in them. Some of the best barrels around do have whiskey in them, in my opinion. On our way down this barrel rabbit hole, we discovered a lot of weird stuff, like why barrels are so important to creating the flavors of our favorite wines and whiskey, and why people don't age wine in mahogany. Turns out the wood really matters. In fact, whiskey wouldn't taste anything like whiskey without a barrel. We also discovered the origins of the word bunghole, which I'd thought only referred to your rear end. I was wrong. All that plus the science of spoofulation. Also, I should say that this episode partly came about because my husband Jeff has been asking for a gastropod episode on barrels for mm, five years now. Jeff, we're here for you eventually. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with Eater. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation, and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there's nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latinx minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Well, our whole focus is to make American single malt that is reflective of the Pacific Northwest. So... When we started the distillery, the goal was to make something that is just reflective of this place. On our very first post-vaccination reporting trip, we also made a point of visiting Westland in their distillery in the industrial neighborhood of South Seattle. Because Matt Hoffman, who's co-founder of Westland, he's making some really unusual whiskey that is deeply rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Matt started this project by swapping out the standard ingredients of commercial single malt for ones that came from closer to home. Local peat, uh, which is a big project we've been working on for, gosh 
close to 10 years now, and then different barley varieties. So even just within the one style of single malt, there's just a ton of room to explore. Barley is obviously key. That's a key grain in whiskey. Single malt whiskey, that's made from barley that's been malted or softened in water until it just starts to germinate. And there's plenty of barley in Washington state. Peat is used for the fires that dry the malted barley, and it also adds those smoky flavors that are so delicious. Scotland consists mostly of peat, and so that's where most of the peat in peated whiskeys comes from. There does happen to be peat in Washington, but nobody had used it for whiskey before. It's a little more complicated than just substituting it for Scottish peat, but Matt's been working on it, and he has local peated whiskey aging in his barrels right now. So with the barley, the peat, and obviously the water all sourced locally, what was left was the barrels. Matt looked at his barrels, and they were made from American white oak, which grows in eastern and central U.S., but not the West. So, okay, is there anything else that grows here? Nearly all barrels for aging booze, wine, as well as whiskey anywhere in the world are made from oak. We'll get into why that is later, but it's true. And honestly, the majority of those barrels around the world, including the ones Matt was using, they're made from American white oak. That is the workhorse of the basically the whiskey industry globally. It grows everywhere. It grows very plentifully. Convenient, cheap, but not local. Matt knew that there are something like 500 different species of oak in the world. They're all in what's called the Quercus family. Quercus alba is the American white oak, but the West does have plenty of its own quercai or quercum or quirka, quercuses, whatever. I mean, this species here, Quercus gariana, only grows here in the Pacific Northwest. And it's the only, not only does it only grow here, but it's the only white oak species that grows here. Let's drop the quercus. Gariana oaks, they're also known as Gary for short, so Gary it is. Gary oaks grow exclusively between two mountain ranges on the West Coast, which are the Cascades and the Coast Range, which is also called the Olympics. It only grows between these two mountains. It's like 50 miles wide. It's the perfect and only climate in which it grows. So it's like this I-5 corridor from essentially Vancouver, B.C., down through almost to San Francisco. Now, I have to say, when you drive the I-5 up through Oregon to Seattle, you don't see a lot of oaks. It's mostly sprucey looking. So as, as a Pacific Northwest native, right, so I, I grew up here, I had no idea that we had oaks. <laughs> you know, we associate the Pacific Northwest so much with evergreen trees, dug fir and things like that. But the most amazing thing about Gary Oak is the backstory. The backstory starts a mere 10,000 years ago. Ice sheets covered the Pacific Northwest, and then things warmed up and the ice melted. So as the last glacial lobes retreated to the north, this oak that was growing in California began to migrate north uh, into the Willamette Valley, eventually here into the Puget Sound, and then up to Vancouver Island and a little bit into southern British, what is now southern British Columbia. People, Native Americans, enjoyed eating the acorns that this Gary Oak dropped. But the other thing that was happening was that deer and elk were noticing these acorns here and were like, okay, this is great. This is some amazing food for us. So they're coming in here and, and happily eating all these acorns. And essentially what was happening was Native Americans were realizing, okay, this is the perfect trap. <laughs> the acorns were luring in all this delicious four-legged meat, and the oak trees themselves grow far enough apart to make it easy to hunt. And the deer and elk that were lured in by those acorns, they became particularly tasty. It's just like the super famous Spanish ham, the jamón ibérico, where the pigs eat tons of acorns and their meat ends up fatty and kind of nutty, and it is delicious. But there was trouble in paradise because Fir trees were also growing in this Gary Oak savanna. Because oaks are deciduous, they're only growing, you know, during the spring and summer part of the year, whereas fir trees will grow faster. And if a fir tree goes grows next to an oak and the oak is shaded out, the oak will die. 
So if left completely to its own devices, the fir trees would wipe out oaks here in the Northwest. If that happened, so much for this incredibly tasty dinner for the Native Americans. But fortunately, they had a trick up their sleeve because Gary Oak is pretty fire resistant and Douglas fir isn't. What they did over thousands of years was practice controlled burns through these Gary Oak savannas that would remove any competing species, any fir species, any other things that would compete with the oaks. And so what you'd end up with is these kind of, they look like plains, like like kind of farmland almost, but you'd have these oaks and they'd be big and dispersed around. Yay, plenty of Gary Oaks, plenty of acorns, plenty of room to hunt down delicious elk and deer. And then guess what? It's that age-old story. Europeans show up and screw everything up. People came in and said, this looks like excellent farmland, which it would be, and it is still today, you know, in the 1850s, 1860s, and cut it 95% of it down because they had no idea what they were dealing with. And you see a lot of, you know, Gary Oaks, especially prominent in the Willamette Valley, as well as on Vancouver Island around Victoria. But it's, you know, it's almost all gone relative to what used to be out there. And this is why nearly the entire Pacific Northwest looks like an evergreen forest, and there's almost no oak savanna to be seen. But there are still some Gary Oaks standing, and Matt did some research and some digging. He read a research paper on the chemistry of Gary Oakwood, and he found one guy in the Willamette Valley in Oregon who was making barrels from it for some winemakers who wanted to try it out. Gary Oak might be rare, and it is protected in some places, but not on a state level. And most of it is on private land, so this guy gets his logs from trees that fall or maybe get cut down when people want to build on that land. So we began working with, this is Oregon Barrel Works, began working with him in 2011 and sourcing, at, the, at, at first it was five casks at a time. Matt didn't really know what was going to happen. He didn't know how the whiskey was going to taste when he tried to age it in a Gary Oak barrel, but the only way he was going to figure it out was to give it a try. The glass on your left is a pure Gario cask sample. So this right away is clearly different from American white oak. The whiskey aged in Gary Oak was clearly a different color. It was a darker, warmer, reddish brown, whereas whiskey aged in white oak is that typical caramel whiskey color that you expect. So we appreciated the color, we sniffed it like pros, and then we tasted it. I would have sworn cherry-aged. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people say the same thing. There's this dark fruitiness to it. It just turns everything dark is the way that I like to think about it. Westland doesn't sell this neat Gary cask whiskey. And also, it's still super young. It's fiery. But when I tried it, to me, it tasted like Christmas pudding. Dried fruit, dark sugar, maybe some cloves. I've never had Christmas pudding, but I agree. It's like raisiny and molassesy, and so incredibly delicious. And it's totally different from whiskey aged in the other kind of American oak. We actually loved it, but for Matt, the sweetness and heaviness was a little much. You know, the first thing here, when we tried it after three months, we were like, Holy smokes, this, it's like drinking Kansas City-style barbecue sauce. Which is great in a meat-based context, obviously, but not exactly what he was going for. So Matt's been experimenting by blending whiskey aged in Gary barrels with whiskey he's been aging in American white oak. He poured out a sample of the first bottling they sold of one of these new blends. I get more of the vanilla-y that, that I didn't get at all before, and the really intense like raisin molasses is like way toned down. Like it's there, you still get the fruit, but it's not nearly as prominent. Yeah. So, in, you know, with American white oak, you get caramel, 
In Quercus cariana, it's molasses. That's what makes this super fascinating. You can literally taste the difference between whiskey made in barrels of these two different oak species, Gary and American white oak. This is not a subtle nuance like when people are like, oh, I'm getting notes of roasted plums and leather. It's really distinctive. You would not have a problem telling the difference in a blind taste test. So what on earth is creating that difference? What's going on between the alcohol and the wood? So the first thing is flavor extraction. So that's the easiest thing. That's what most people understand. Okay, so flavors can be extracted from barrels. That sounds logical, but we wanted to figure out a little bit more about how this works. So we called up Aude Waterloo. She specializes in the science of wine at Iowa State University. And I'm working closely with the industry, the wine industry of Iowa and the Midwest, trying to improve what we know about the grape and the wine chemistry, trying to improve, I would say, the grape and wine quality of Iowa and the Midwest. What happens when wine and whiskey are hanging out in barrels? It's slightly different, but overall, the science is pretty much the same. And in both cases, the wood you use really matters. Different woods and different species of oaks contain different chemical compounds, which means that there are different flavor chemicals available to be extracted by your alcohol, depending on which wood you store it in. We mentioned there are 500 species of oak, but really only four are used for barrels. There's American white oak, that's one. You have a couple of oak species in Europe. So you'd see these more in the world of cognac and especially in wines and French wines. And you sometimes see them being imported to the U.S. uh, to make wine casts if they want to use French oak. And then you've got Mizunara oak from Japan. And Mizunara oak from Japan was something that came about basically when the Japanese couldn't source American white oak, especially around World War II. And they began looking for their local oak species. is really, really rare. That became very popular in the whiskey industry, but it's it's very difficult to find, very difficult to source. I would personally love to get my hands on some of that just to experiment with it, but the cost of it is, is astronomical as well. Before single malt whiskey is aged in one of these oaks, it tastes just kind of like barley moonshine. There's a barley-esque flavor to it, but whiskey experts say about 80% of the flavor comes from the barrel. And if it's an American white oak barrel, you might get a pretty strong hit of vanilla and coconut. French oak doesn't have that, or has that a very low uh, quantity, I believe, Gary Oak, what we're using here with the Garyana Project, doesn't have any of that at all. What's going on is that American white oak trees just produce these vanilla-flavored molecules in their wood. They're actually the exact same chemicals people use to make artificial vanilla flavor. French oak produces chemicals that taste more like caramel and baking spices, less sweet and less full-on than American white oak. And Mizanara, which I got hold of in Japan... It tastes super different again. It's like sandalwood incense. So in the barrel, the whiskey or the wine, it's soaking just a little bit into the wood and then soaking back out. Alcohol is particularly good at extracting flavor molecules. You can do that at home by soaking lemons and vodka to make limoncello, or you can use ethanol to make your own vanilla extract. And so the alcohol is pulling the wood flavors out of the wood and into the booze. But that's not the only thing that's happening in the barrel. So you will have oxygen coming from outside into inside. And that will help the color stability, that will help uh, the texture, so the astringency perception of the wine, uh, which is the drying sensation you can have when you drink a red wine. 
that's supposed to decrease a little bit. So let's break that down. As oxygen seeps in through the pores in the wooden barrel, a few different things start happening. The oxygen reacts with both the molecules in the wood and the molecules in the booze, and it rearranges them. And those rearrangements, in red wine, they create more stable color pigments, so those lovely ruby tones. And then for both wine and whiskey, oxygen-triggered reactions help some of the flavor molecules that are floating around clump together into larger, more complex flavor compounds. Another kind of molecule that clumps together are the tannin ones. Think of that kind of mouth-drying feeling. Over time, oxygen helps tannin molecules link up together, and so they become big enough and heavy enough to fall out of sediment. So, like Odd said, a red wine that starts out really tannic before being aged in a barrel ends up kind of with a softer mouthfeel. So you might think, if oxygen is doing all these great things, why not just leave your whiskey or your wine sitting out in a vat? Why enclose it in a barrel in the first place? Because you don't want to have oxidation of your wine. That's not the purpose. Fast oxidation, like just leaving the top off a big vat of wine? Odd says the flavor molecules that would be created would taste really bad, like rotten apple flavors. You definitely don't want that. The purpose of oxygen transfer, that's really to have a slight transfer of oxygen during time. So that can be for several months, several years just to have a little bit of oxygen, to have some chemical reaction happening, but not in one day. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand, is that a barrel, uh, especially a barrel made from white oak, has this perfect blend of porosity, allowing oxidation from the atmosphere, allowing evaporation from the liquid, but also not, hopefully, allowing the liquid to seep out. Evaporation is the third thing going on through the barrel. Just a little tiny bit of the pure ethanol, the alcohol, evaporates through the barrel, and then the flavors left behind get even more concentrated. So this all explains how barrels can create flavor. But that leads us straight to another question. Why oak? Why is oak so special that it's the wood that we make all our barrels out of? That's where we're going next, after this word from our sponsors. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You know that feeling when you try a new food for the first time and your mouth experiences these brand new flavors and sensations? It's like, wow, I didn't even know a food could do that. This happened to me when I went on this amazing trip to the northern tip of Queensland in Australia. We were so far north that we were off the country's electrical grid. And we were staying on a banana farm where they grew dozens and dozens of different kinds of bananas. In the morning, I woke up to a basket full of some of the most bananas bananas you can imagine. Red ones that were super soft and sweet like raspberries, and small finger-sized ones that were sort of floral, and even blue ones that tasted exactly like vanilla ice cream. Life's too short to pass up extraordinary experiences. And if you're ready to take your next big food adventure, go there with Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go with... 
the reason we use oak. Nate Lindquist is the cooper at a distillery called Rolling Thunder, part of a company called Rogue, and he took us to see some oak logs stacked at his cooperage on the Oregon coast. And we can see right here this wonderful pattern here, and these are the medullary rays, and they are part of the wood's fluid transport system, and those are at 90 degrees to the growth rings. So those are part of how the tree gets its nutrients from the inner to the outer. And those are the primary reason why we started using oak. Nate told us that not all trees have that same type of internal structure. When the oak dries, those medullary rays form an impermeable watertight barrier. Oak just held liquid better than barrels from other trees that people might have tried. So in the old days, they would get to where they're going and they would have more product to sell so it became just the way to go, and over the centuries, we just got used to the flavor. Nowadays, barrels are all about flavor. But that wasn't why people started putting alcohol in barrels. In the past, they put alcohol and basically everything else in barrels, because if you put a barrel on its side, it's amazing for moving stuff around. And this makes the barrel unique as opposed to a flat-sided pail, tub, whatever you want to call it. Henry Work is also a cooper. He's been one for many decades, and he wrote a couple of very detailed books about barrels, including one called Wood, Whiskey, and Wine, A History of Barrels. There's only a small portion of the barrel that's on the ground, and it makes it very easy to roll a barrel and turn it if uh, the barrel is full of liquid, say, say, and weighing several hundreds of pounds, which which they do. And that was why they were so well utilized, especially in the days of sailing ships. And because the barrels were so maneuverable, men, probably mostly men, could move very heavy barrels weighing thousands of pounds. Genius. So who invented this amazing contraption? Well, we think the Celts invented it. They knew how to bend wood. They had the forests, and they, they knew how to use tools. So very probably the Celts invented it sometime in the second or third centuries B.C., and then the Romans, as they came in and conquered them, adopted the technology and the designs and such. The Celts, who at the time lived all over northern Europe, they were famous for their advanced ironworking skills. It's not that other places in the world didn't have tools and didn't have wood, but nobody else seems to have invented the barrel independently. It's a good question. Why wasn't it invented in China or Japan? They certainly have buckets and, you know, big vats and things like that. We don't know why they didn't. In fact, even in Europe, these Celtic barrels didn't catch on right away, at least not in the Roman Empire's homeland in the Mediterranean. They didn't have the, the forest, sense of forest. They didn't have experience of using barrels. It's much drier. Barrels tend to dry out. So there were problems to using barrels around the Mediterranean. Also, those early Celtic barrels weren't exactly barrel perfection. We said the Celts were good at making iron tools, but that's a relative thing. Those early tools weren't super precise, and they weren't super sharp. So they wouldn't have used the hardest woods. They would use softer woods, spruce, fir, maybe elm, birch, things like that. Those early softwood barrels were pretty leaky, unlike the amphorae. I've looked at a lot of data for barrels even in the 15th century, and uh, shipments would you know, arrive with three or four barrels empty because they'd leak 
during the shipment. Also, soft leaky barrels often were sealed with pitch, which is resin from pine trees. And according to Henry, the pitch added a, quote, undesirable flavor to wine. And anyway, in the Mediterranean, they already had a system for wine storage. They stored wine in a large pottery vessel called an amphora. Amphorae are certainly fine for storage, but they are really heavy, much heavier than barrels. And they could easily break when you shipped wine in them across the Mediterranean. And as the Romans started building their empire and their troops started spreading out all across northern Europe, supply chains for essentials like wine got pretty long. Transporting the alcohol needed for thousands of soldiers was basically impossible in amphorae. So the barrel eventually triumphed. We don't know exactly when people started using barrels made of oak in particular. Barrels eventually disintegrate, so there's not a lot of evidence. But Henry says by the year 300 or so, basically all barrels were made of oak. That's because tools got better, so people could cut harder wood, and there was plenty of hard oak around in Europe. And as Nate told us, dried oak is watertight, so barrel makers eventually made the switch. And then, at some point, people would have noticed that, hey, not only is this oak barrel less leaky, for moving liquid around, it also makes any alcohol that sat in it for a while taste different. So when did that breakthrough happen? Well, again, that's one of the things we don't know. But we do know that the Romans in the Roman Empire have written about wine that's been aged. They knew that wine got better. Well, some wine got better if it aged. Wine during shipments aged just because the shipments took a long time. If the barrel didn't leak, the wine often arrived better than when it left. And maybe the captain might attest to that if he tapped into some of the barrels on the way. (laughs) Oh, this is getting better and better and better. I think I'll just keep trying this. So barrels were invented, and then oak became the wood of choice. Awesome. You can move booze and make it taste better. And that's basically where most of the major innovation ended. The next big thing would have been steel hoops, the use of steel hoops. And by using the steel hoops, they could get the barrels tighter and had less leakage. One steel hoop had the strength of six wooden hoops. So that was definitely an improvement, although, to be honest, it wasn't really a revolutionary change. And, of course, tools got better, especially once the Industrial Revolution began. As industrialization really hit its stride in the 1860s, when the American oil rush began, there weren't pipelines or steel drums. All that oil had to be stored in wooden barrels, and coopers couldn't make them fast enough by hand. So there was a big push to invent machines that could speed things up. Machines didn't only work faster, they were also more precise. And so barrels got even less leaky. So they've definitely improved over the years But basically, the style of the barrel has changed very little in 2,000 years. You know, a Roman cooper could walk into a a winery today and he'd be in awe of the stainless steel, but he'd recognize the barrel immediately. He's using a punch, so it's a nail gun with no nails in it. It just has a punch that's punching through the steel hoops just enough to create a barb into the wood so the hoops won't go up and down or back and forth. This is Matt Fortran. He works with a guy called Rick DeFerrari at Oregon Barrel Works, which is where Matt Hoffman at Westland gets his Gary Oak barrels from. That nail gun wouldn't have been around at the time of the Romans, nor would the steel hoops, but the premise is the same. The sides of the barrels are made of long pieces of wood. They're called staves, and those staves were and are held together by curved hoops. Today, coopers use a nail-free gun to secure the hoops so no nails get rusty in the whiskey. So we're going from, we go from log to barrel. In that journey, the hoop stage is already a way down the line. 
First, a cooper has to age his logs. Matt showed us huge piles of wood that have been aging for nearly three years to get to the right moisture level for wine barrels. Then you have to cut your logs, which is a whole other thing. You can't just saw them like regular planks. We'll go here. And this is an example of a log which we had quarters on. Nate, that cooper from Rolling Thunder, he actually trained with Rick, and the warehouse where he builds his barrels is about an hour away from Rick, so we visited both. In case it's not obvious, a quarter sawn log is a log that's literally split down the center of the log in four, so you get four long quarters with a sharp right angle in the center. This quarter sawn business is not just for fun or aesthetics. It all goes back to those medullary rays in the oak. After a tree's cut down, those little pores tighten and shrink, and they create an impermeable layer that makes oak super watertight, if you line up your cuts correctly. So what we're attempting to do with quarter sawn is get the growth rings parallel and those medullary rays at 90 degrees to that, which, like I said, prevents the fluid from migrating out. And then at this point, you cut the staves out of the pieces of wood. Each 8 to 12 foot log provides enough wood to make the staves for one or two barrels. Then there's a bunch of fancy sewing to shape the edges of the staves. And then, Rick told us, the real magic begins. There's no set width to the staves. They're all random widths. The wood is so valuable that if we had to cut it, you know, two inches, two and a half inches, we'd lose so much wood. So there's no set number of staves in the barrel. We just know we need to have this circumference for that size barrel. And so, you know, we just kind of lay it out. And it's basically, you just start putting pieces till you find the last one that kind of makes it tight. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Rick lays all these slightly different width staves out on a table and swaps them in and out to get to the right width for a barrel. After Rick puts his barrel puzzle together, the staves are laid out flat. It just looks kind of like a wooden fence of different widths of planks that only touch in the middle of the planks. Each stave is thinner at the ends and a little thicker in the middle. So how do you take this mess of planks and curve them and smush them into a barrel? trickiest part of the whole process this is raising up so raising up hoop grab each one one at a time put it in lock it in place you really have to have good thumbs for this it is super tricky nate grabbed a big metal hoop and put the end of the first stave up against it inside the hoop then he slid the next stave next to it sort of wedged up against it and then the next one And the next one. And then just grab them, tuck them in place, and work around. (laughs) I'm not going to do the whole thing here because this takes about 20 minutes, and when I have an audience, I tend to uh, get distracted and drop them. Nate may have stopped halfway, but as he worked his way around the barrel, what was nuts was that the stave stayed put, even when he wasn't holding the ones back at the start, just because of how wedged up against each other in the metal hoop they were. At the end of the hoop raising, the result is a thing that looks kind of like a narrow teepee, or maybe a hula skirt, with a hoop at the top and sticks fanned out from the hoop. That's not a barrel. The staves have to curve. They have to bend. People always think uh, a lot of times that you bend with water or bend with steam. You bend with fire. And so these fire pots uh, will get up to about 600 degrees inside the barrel without burning it. It's kind of remarkable. 
and the barrel becomes really plasticky. Matt showed us the fire pots. They look like slightly more hardcore versions of the chimney you'd use to light your charcoal for your Weber grill. Basically, they use these chimney-like devices to get a controlled fire going on in the barrels that they'll keep glowing for about 45 minutes to an hour and a half to get the staves just bendy enough so they don't break when they're forced into barrel-like curves. As soon as the staves are all nice and plasticky, our coopers use this really weird-looking machine with a whole bunch of these octopus-like hydraulic arms to pull the staves at the open end of the teepee together. And then they slip on a temporary hoop to hold everything in place, and then you get something that sort of looks like a barrel. Then they toast the inside of the barrels. They keep the fire pot burning slowly for maybe a couple of hours to get the inside of the barrel to look like nice amber-colored toast. The cooking term is the Maillard reaction, and that's basically altering the wood sugars to get a different flavor and color profile. It's almost like making caramel. And the flavor compounds that are created by toasting are kind of like that, caramelly and vanilla-y. And those compounds get pulled out by the alcohol, as we described. (laughs) It's wonderful, yeah. Nate knows when he's toasted his barrel perfectly because it smells so freaking good. I get a basic idea from looking at it, the color, but then when I get the... Oh, probably the best comparison is if you know the smell that you get from 85% cacao chocolate just right before it liquefies. That's the smell I'm going for. I can't imagine that, and it would smell fantastic. Traditionally, only wine barrels get toasted, but Rick started doing it for whiskey, too, and people seem to like it. With whiskey, coopers don't usually toast. Instead, they light the inside of the barrel up with a huge blazing flame. Today, Rick first toasts his whiskey barrels, and then he sets the whole thing on fire. This is a process called charring, and it doesn't happen to wine barrels just whiskey. It's a really different process. Toasting is like slowly baking a cake in a warm oven. You take your time to create those golden, toasty, caramelized flavors. And charring, that's like getting out your blowtorch and making the surface of your creme brulee bubble or setting your bananas foster on fire. Or, you know, the inside of your barrel. With whiskey, you just build a big fire in here, let it go. And then we use a blowtorch. I just light this and go around on the inside of the barrel till it catches on fire. I mean, the flame will shoot almost to the ceiling in here. Um, and then the big piece of metal over there is leaning. We just slap it on top, snuff out the flame, let it rest for a few minutes. So from lighting it on fire to putting that on is about maybe three to five seconds. This part of the barrel making process is super dramatic. It is pretty cool. It's, it's really, really hot. In fact, my arm hair is just now growing back. We asked Matt if he gets singed every time. He said, yeah, every single time. So, you know, the fire pot is inside the barrel and we got to keep stoking it with little pieces of wood, you know, reaching in all the time and your arm hair just gets singed off. I've lost my eyelashes and my eyebrows. The char does a bunch of things to the barrel, too. First of all, the flavors it creates are even stronger than the toasty ones. Second, the color. Pre-barrel, the whiskey is clear, and the charcoal layer in the wood gives whiskey that beautiful amber color that people now think is whiskey-colored. And Matt at Westland says the char also helps get rid of flavors you don't want. So a lot of those are sulfur-based. One of the most amazing things about charred casks, which all whiskey barrels are charred these days, Um, is that the interior kind of carbonization of of a charred cask will trap and remove sulfur compounds. Charring for the triple win. 
And by now, we're nearly there with our baby barrel. They cool it down, they pop off the temporary hoops, they sand it, then they stick it in this heavy-duty machine called a hoop driver to put on the permanent hoops that keep the barrel really tight. Yeah, you can see the, you can see the force. Um, you know, it's pushing with almost 3,000 PSI uh, to get that hoop on. And it shouldn't go anywhere. And then after the hoops are untight, they drill a hole in the barrel, you know, so you can get the whiskey or wine out. That hole gets sealed with a cork. There's your bunghole. Excuse me. Yep, a bunghole originally referred to a barrel hole, and apparently the words came to represent a butthole at least by the 1600s when it first showed up in print as slang. So we choose the widest stave. Obviously center it as best as possible. This is our our bung boring machine, just a drill. Then they fire up the flamethrower. Just an acetylene torch. And we use it to heat up the bung tool there. That cauterizes the bung. Cauterizing a bung does sound really painful, but I'm told it's a humane process. Once the bung is sorted, the barrel needs a top and a bottom too, just to add to the kink. But what's wild is that even those flat parts are complicated because every single barrel is a slightly different size and circumference because of that whole stave jigsaw puzzle. So we compass them to find the radius, to find the exact size of every single barrel. So every head is cut specifically for the barrel. We watch Rick cutting a barrel head. For us, really high tech. Actually, has a laser on it. We're going to put the head in there, line it up. Close the door. This cutter is going to go in there. The head's going to turn, and it's going to cut that angle. Wow, look at that. Yeah, pretty nice, huh? Ta-da! Pop the lid on, and Bob's your uncle. Except for the final step, a little quality control. We just fill it with water, and we just let it go till it's full. Turn it off, and then wait for leaks. If it doesn't leak after about a minute, you know it's going to be fine. The oak staves are now beautifully bent. They're tightly held together by steel hoops. But what's kind of amazing is that Nate says if you took off the hoops, those staves would stay bent. So I've got staves over on the rack that from barrels that we disassembled five years ago, and they've still got almost all of that curvature. Once you've coopered a barrel, it's coopered. But coopering itself, the art of making barrels, that nearly disappeared. That story coming up after this break. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rick's been coopering for about 30 years. He was turned on to it because when he was backpacking through Europe, he started working at a winery, and next thing you know, he'd put away his URL pass and started apprenticing with a cooper. But when he wanted to start his own business in the U.S., it was almost impossible to even find equipment. He had to buy century-old stuff from France. When I started, there was nobody, but now there's uh, you know a handful of people kind of doing it uh, again, which is good to see because it is kind of a dying art, you know. Uh, but as you can see, it's... It's hard, dusty, hot work. At one point, it must have seemed as though the art of coopering would never die. Henry told us that in the 1800s, barrels ruled the world. Tens of millions of them were used to move everything. Beer, cheese, crackers, salted fish, pickles, sugar, flour, petroleum, everything. There was probably, uh, this is a rough guess, maybe 5,000 coopers in North America and Europe. And it's dropped down to less than 100 now. Why did barrels go away? Well, container ships with all those huge rectangular shipping containers that big cranes lift off and on those ships. Wine doesn't even usually get shipped in barrels these days. Instead, it travels in big plastic bags that are stored in shipping containers, and then the wine is bottled when it gets to its destination. Barrels started out as a necessity. They were essential for moving stuff and alcohol around. But now they're kind of a luxury. If they're still used, they're used because they improve the flavor and color and mouthfeel of whiskey and wine. Whiskey basically has to age in a barrel. That's what makes it whiskey. But for wine, it's optional. Maybe only 20 or 30 percent of wine is barrel aged. Some types of grapes and wine, like Pinot Grigio, aren't improved by being aged in oak. Some kinds of wine are aged in maybe steel vats. Sometimes a winemaker doesn't want barrel flavors in their wine, and sometimes it's a question of money. Because using barrels, that's really good for adding complexity, adding specific aroma compounds, specific uh, characteristic to the wine, but it has an economic sense to think about. So using barrels, that's something that has a cost. Barrels are not cheap. I asked Rick what it would cost me to take one of his barrels home with me. <laughs> For you, $900. Rick said an industrial American white oak barrel would be around $350, maybe $400. Ricks are expensive because they're handmade. His team works on many barrels at a time, of course, but each individual barrel takes about a week from start to finish. A French oak barrel is even more expensive, like $1,100 or $1,200. That's because the French forests are smaller, so there's less wood available. And then the government manages the forests really, really carefully, so the wood is exquisite and accordingly pricey. And, you know, it's French. Uh, I could just tell you, wine people are about the most persnickety folk you'll ever find. Somehow, in the history of winemaking, we got really stuck on French oak. And they have farmed it sustainably for, you know, hundreds of years, and it's valuable. But once you get that in your mind frame, it's sometimes hard to break out. And winemakers are willing to pay for it. If you're selling a $100 bottle of wine, the price of the barrel won't add too much to the overall cost. But if it's like a $25 or $30 bottle, Henry told us at that point, the cost of the barrel is maybe second only to the grapes. So winemakers and distillers reuse their barrels. It's only American bourbon that by law has to go into new barrels of freshly charred American oak. 
Scotch whiskey makers are thrifty folk, and they often buy those barely used bourbon barrels for much less than they cost brand new. Sometimes thriftiness leads to a delightful outcome. Some time ago, Scotch whiskey makers had some barrels around that had contained sherry shipped over from Spain, and they used those sherry barrels to make their scotch, and hey, a delightful new style of whiskey was born. Today it's common to age wine and whiskey and beer and used barrels from other types of booze to get even more flavors. But although we are all about reuse, Odd told us that a barrel doesn't actually last forever, at least in terms of flavor. Because the more you would use it, the less compounds you would still have. More than half of those compounds leach out after the very first year, then they slowly fade away. A barrel stops contributing any flavor notes after about four to eight years, depending on how strong the alcohol in them is. Then you can store liquids in the barrels, but the flavor won't change like it's supposed to. But because new barrels are so pricey, clever wine people have tried to figure various ways around this. Some coopers will refinish used barrels. They'll grind off the inside layer of wood to reveal some fresh, flavorful new wood. But you can only do that a couple of times before the staves get too thin. Another creative approach is what's called spoofulation. It's trying to mimic what a barrel does without a barrel. We explored this in our episode about the role time plays in food. They're doing things like putting chips of oak in whiskey containers or bubbling up slow streams of oxygen. Wine snobs call the results spoofy wine. And honestly, it isn't quite the same as real barrel-aged but people keep trying. Meanwhile, and this is bringing us right back to where we started, Coopers are getting creative too. We're calling it the Weird Woods or the Single Barrel Project. In his one-man barrel-making shop, Nate is experimenting with making barrels from all sorts of woods for Jake, the master distiller at Rogue. So we've done a cherry barrel, which I think turned out fantastically. And then Jake found a buddy of his down in Texas, and he got us some pecan wood. So we made a couple of pecan barrels, and that is another absolutely fantastic. I wish we had some of the whiskey here, but uh, it all went out. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, we were bummed we couldn't taste it. Honestly, I actually felt it was kind of cruel to tell us about it and then not have any for us to taste. But he didn't have much, just like there isn't much of anything that isn't oak. Some people have experimented with acacia wood, some have tried chestnut, but those winemakers are mostly using these woods for how they let oxygen in and out, not for their unique flavor chemistry. Still, this isn't happening much. Remember, 99.9999% of the barrels used are oak. Everyone's been using oak for so long because it's great. It's watertight, it's bendy, it's food safe, it's even a little antimicrobial. It lets oxygen in at just the right rate and it adds great flavors. What's not to love? But maybe there's an even better wood out there just as watertight and all that other stuff and somehow also an improvement. Probably. But yeah, we will have to go through a lot of different wood and that's also because we don't know a lot about all the different type of wood that can be used for barrels. Nate is on a quest to fill in those gaps in our knowledge. So what we have here is part of our experimental process. I'll do toasted sections of the various woods and then mix those in with the whiskey so we can look at the color and get an idea of the aroma and flavor. He's actually borrowing a trick from the spoofulators here. We got to smell a few of his experiments that were aging in glass jars. This is Doug Fur. I was expecting it to be more sprucey. We were expecting the real resinous aroma, but it's not showing up. That's maple. Oh, wow. That's 
smells like it smells like it's got maple. a maple note. It smells like maple. That is gonna make a really nice spirit. At this point, we were like, yeah, go for it. Make a maple barrel. But it's not so easy. For one thing, Nate mostly wants fruit and nut trees because these are usually the tasty and food-safe ones, but modern orchards don't let them grow big enough to become a barrel-sized tree. So anytime we're going to find something large enough to make, it's going to be something left over from a heritage that's getting knocked down to put in a housing development or something. For another, a lot of these woods aren't easy to work with. When Nate made a full-size barrel of pecan and tried to age whiskey in it, he discovered that pecan is very porous. He ended up having to seal all the holes up with beeswax. And remember that Gary oak that's native to the Pacific Northwest and tastes like molasses? Even though it's an oak, that's really tough to work with, too. First of all, there's very little of it around. And unlike the French forests, it's not managed and grown for barrels, so the trees are twisty and full of knots. The second big thing is that they will split. It's more brittle. Uh, the Quercus garyana in particular, relative to the American uh, white oak. So when you're working with this wood, you have to be very careful to not let it split, let it check. It's a really, really dense hardwood compared to other oak, uh, which means it's more difficult to bend, more difficult to cut, harder on the equipment. It's hardy. Still, Rick and Matt at Oregon Barrel Works have figured it out, and alongside experimental distillers like Matt at Westland, they're gradually building a market for Gary Oak barrels. They're also trying to rebuild the Gary Oak savanna that European colonizers destroyed. Matt's working on a restoration project with a local environmental group to replant a Gary Oak savanna near an Air Force base. It's basically the biggest stand of Gary Oak in the entire state. More Gary Oak is great for lots of ecological reasons, especially as climate change makes the fire risk in the West worse and worse. Oak forests are less flammable than some of the evergreens. And oak is a keystone species. It supports tons of native wildlife, from truffles to birds to bears. And of course, some of that Gary oak could be used in a barrel. But Matt is never going to be able to use barrels from the trees he's planting to age his whiskey. I mean, Gary oak is so slow growing. You know, it'd be, what, 150 years before you could get enough wood to harvest it? In Oregon, Nate is also trying to seed some Gary for the future. He told us about a nice stand of Gary Oak he knows not too far from his cooperage. Every so often I'll go down there in the fall and I'll scavenge up a bunch of acorns and grow those and hand those out. Yeah, I've probably handed out about 70 to 80 saplings over the years from here. When you work with wood, you have to think long term. If you make barrels or use barrels... You think about forests. What's kind of amazing is that, yes, barrels have been made in almost the same way for thousands of years. The equipment Nate and Rick have in their workshop, some of that is a century old. And the entire field of barrel making is really small these days. But there's still a whole world of new flavors to be discovered. The most fun part about Gary Oak for me is that we're contributing something new. People have been drinking whiskey their entire lives. People who know single malt whiskey really well. And this kind of the types of flavor compounds that we're getting from Gary Oak are just like really unique. The fact that you can still innovate and like show people something they've never experienced before is is an immensely cool thing to be able to do. 
Thanks this episode to Matt Hoffman of Westland, Rick DeFerrari and Matt Fortran of Oregon Barrel Works, Nate Lindquist of Rolling Thunder and Rogue, and Ode Wattrello from Iowa State. We have links to their websites, barrels, and whiskey at gastropod.com, where you'll also find photos and videos of our barrel-making visits. And finally, thanks to Nikki's husband, Jeff, for repeatedly suggesting this episode. Jeff, we finally did it. Thanks, as always, to producer Sonia Swanson and to our partners at Eater as part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back with a freshly charred new episode in two weeks. Till then. This episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food. You're probably thinking about food right now, aren't you? Look, we get it. Sometimes a craving is more than a craving. It's a calling that you have to indulge, even if it takes you thousands of miles to get there. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta Sky Miles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex slash you know reserve to learn more. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.